This is Galatians 5, starting in verse 13. It says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is God's word. Dear God, um, I just pray for Kevin as he leads our gathering in our time of worship. And I pray that you would give him peace. I pray, Lord, that you would um, convict our hearts and that you would lead us into your light. I pray that um, you would help us to remember that this time of listening and receiving your word is a time of worship, that it is about you and your glory, and thank you that we are participants in that. Um, I pray that you would just draw us closer to yourself during this time. Thank you, God, that you do the work to pursue and reveal and convict God, and it is not something that we can be dependent on ourselves for. You are so wise, and you are patient and gentle. And you're something I pray in. Welcome once again as we continue in our series through the book of Galatians. Now, I've told myself several times over the past few weeks, I've told some of you this, that I'm going to stop talking about COVID. I think I, if I've without driven my kids crazy, probably a lot of you. But then I realized the passage that we were coming to this week. I would say there's a top five list of verses that American Christians should have memorized before the pandemic. Um, this probably would have been at the top. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. But here's another thing that I've been um, telling myself and others this week. I have been given freedom to speak up here um, by God, ultimately by you. And in a passage talking about not using your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, I have to make sure that I don't use this pulpit on this day to do exactly that. Because this has been a hard season to be a pastor, a sad season to be an American citizen, and it's kind of tempting, I have to be real. Now, there are two ways that we tend to live, that we try to live. Um, we talk about these all the time here in Chorus, whether or not we would call ourselves a Christian. And the first is that we go through life trying to prove ourselves, how good of a person we are. We, we try to do all the right things, we try to avoid all the bad, we try to tip the scales in the right direction. We try to prove ourselves to those around us, to ourselves maybe the most, and yet for some of us, to God. Now we may at times feel like we're doing quite well, we may feel some pride, but more often than that, not that we know that we don't measure up and we find ourselves in despair. The second way we try to live is that we give up on the game entirely. We, we cast off all the rules, we make up our own, we do what we want. We become gods unto ourselves, we don't care what others think, we resolve to go our own way. Now that frame of mind, of course, is pretty prideful as well. But throwing ourselves in that direction just leaves us empty. You know, we wake up with a hangover in the bed we don't recognize. That way, too, leads us away from joy. Well, there's a 
third way, a better way. And we see it clearly here in the book of Galatians and also here in chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. The Apostle Paul tells us here, don't use your freedom to sin but to serve, otherwise be scared. Don't use your freedom to sin but to serve, otherwise be scared. So let's look at Paul's main point. Followed up by his reasoning that he gives, and then we'll close with the consequences if we don't hear this word of the Lord. But let's jump in first here to Paul's point in verse 13. He starts out by calling us brothers. He speaks tenderly to us as family. And yet, this is a plural word that's literally brothers, but as in with many languages, it includes sisters, of course. And Paul says, for you were called to freedom. So he tells them, he tells us, the Lord called you, Christian, one day in the past, if you're now a believer. This isn't what could be called a general call, a shout out to everyone, hey, whoever's available, come get on the bus. This is what has been called an effectual call. This is a work of God in the heart that accomplishes what it sets out to accomplish. This is Jesus calling out to his disciples and then throwing down their nets and following them. This is Paul on the Damascus road getting knocked to the ground. This is Jesus calling out to the tomb saying, Lazarus, come out, and he walks out. Paul saying, one day Jesus called you, he gave you life, and you began following him. And God reminds us here through him that that calling was to freedom. To freedom. Now, Paul here is reminding us of the whole purpose of the book. I know a lot of you haven't been with us the whole time we've been in this series. But the book of Galatians. False teachers have infiltrated that church. We now look back and call them Judaizers. That's because they were trying to convince those believers that you had to be a good Jew before you could be a real Christian. So they said you have to keep the feasts of the Old Testament. You have to follow all the food laws, and yeah, you have to be circumcised as well. But the Apostle Paul calls out that lie for what it is. He condemns those men as false teachers, as they are, and he says, you are called the freedom brothers. He says, you've been freed from the law. You don't keep it to be saved. In fact, trying to be right with God in your own efforts, that actually pushes you further away from Him. So what Paul is doing is he's calling out that first way to live where we try to prove ourselves. He's saying that's false, that's dangerous. But then he changes directions in the rest of the verse. Now back in the day, I left this event where I was playing music. It was a cold night, there had been some ice and snow on the roads, and as I was driving away, I hit this patch of ice. I started spinning out, and before I knew it, my car was completely upside down. It scared me out of my mind. Terrifying. But I remember rolling down my window. I was upside again, crawling out onto the snowy ground. And because I had my priorities straight, I thought, you know, I've seen the shows on TV. The car may possibly blow up. So I thought, I got stuff in the trunk. So I took my keys, I opened my trunk, and then my guitars fell out on the snowy ground. And there I stood on the side of the road, holding a guitar in each hand in the cold, in the snow, until people came to pick me up. But before all that, my car slid on the ice, and what happened is I basically jumped from one ditch to the other. And that's what Paul is trying to keep from happening here in these Galatians. 
He doesn't want them to go from thinking that they have to earn their way to God to not thinking God gives a rip about how they live. Because both of those things take you off the road and may get you killed. He writes, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So Paul here in this passage is warning them of that second false way to live where we think we can live any way we want, where our choices don't really matter. Paul uses this word flesh here. He's not literally talking about the meat on our bones. He's using this biblical word to talk about our old fallen nature, who we are in Adam as fallen humans. The flesh. So picture us driving down the road. It's, it's like that flesh wants to seize the opportunity of us realizing that we're no longer under the law and pulling us right into that other ditch. Jesus says, don't let that happen. And I have to ask, is that you today? Is that you? Has the gospel become an excuse for you to do what you want? Has it just become a way to help you feel better when you sin? Paul here says, don't use your freedom in that way. Now, what I think makes things harder in our culture today is that our culture tells us that that's what freedom is, what it in fact has to be. We think we're free if and only if we can do exactly what we want in any and every situation. But that assumes too much about who we are and how we got to where we are in the first place. What? Okay. We only choose based on our desires. We don't walk around making arbitrary choices. Whether we're talking about being faithful to our spouse or, or even what TV show we watch, they're not arbitrary. What, what we choose in every situation flows from who we are at that point in our lives. So we're really not that free. There's a limited range of things that we can really do. Our circumstances limit us. Our very selves limit us. But there's more. That idea also assumes falsely that we came up with those desires on our own. That hello folks, most of the things I want come from the fact that I'm a white male raised in a middle class family in the middle part of America. Right? Here are these words from Mike Cosper that I think are so helpful. He says, we automatically assume that what people want is a matter of their own free will. We like to think of ourselves as autonomous actors in the world. We think our desires are innate, they're ours, and what we want is something that has developed freely and independently. But our desires don't appear out of nowhere innate to our hearts. Rather, they're formed by innumerable explicit and implicit influences that range from our family system to our education to media to politics. When God tells us that we're play, it's not just a happy image that promises that he, the potter, has the power to shape us. It means that we are moldable and something is always forming and shaping us. Our culture tells stories that shape what we think is good and what might make us happy, and our hearts conform to those stories. So, wow, what's he saying? We may think that we're freely choosing to swim, but we're really just floating down with the current. We're not as free as we think we are. And, and what's worse is the direction the current is taking us. Those are taking us after the desires of our flesh. 
They're taking us away from what is best for us, from what will truly allow us to flourish. Those things hurt us. They hurt those around us. So that current is taking us. It's leading to a waterfall, and it's not going to end well for us as we try to go away from our Lord. We're not nearly as free as we think we are. What we call freedom is what the Bible calls bondage. And following Jesus feels like swimming upstream so much of the time. Right? And that's truly what's best for us. And the Holy Spirit pushes us up that river against the current. Along the way of being who we were made to be. Helping us live how we were really meant to live. And that is freedom. Not the ability to do what we want when we want. But to do what we were meant to do. To do what's best for us. But... After that digression, let me get back to the point. God tells us here, don't misunderstand your freedom. So, Karis, we're free from trying to keep the law, the rules to make us right with God, but now we're meant to use that freedom to please Him. Now we want to do that if we're His. How does that freedom get played out? Primarily in how we live with one another. So there's this vertical component of salvation. Where by faith we trust in Jesus and we're made right with God our Father, vertical. But there's horizontal as well. We're made right with our brothers and sisters where we love one another. Paul says, but through love, don't do this, but through love, serve one another. So here's what he's saying. He's saying you're free now, but don't use that freedom as an excuse to let yourself go and go off on those around you. Love, serve, that's what freedom looks like, he says. Now, if I toss a rock into a river, it's going to hit the water, right? And there's going to be a plop sound, right? It, it goes to the surface, plop. But there are ripples, right, that go out from there. If I make a big sound, maybe on the kick drum over there, a big pulse, there are reverberations that are going to pulse out from that. And as we, we think about understanding the Bible, we, we want to get to the main point of a passage, but we also want to be faithful to those ripples, to those echoes, those implications. So an example, Ephesians 5.18. Don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, it's talking about wine, it's talking about alcohol, it's talking about drunkenness. Well, can I get high on marijuana? Well, it's not talking about that, but I think it fits. It's an implication of that. Should I eat 14 brownies a day while I watch a whole series of Netflix shows? Well, it's not exactly what it's talking about, but numbing pain, not listening to the Spirit, it's on the bullseye somewhere, right? That's what we're talking about here. What is the passage talking about? What are the implications of it? Well, here, the heart, the center of what the passage means is don't think being free from the rules means that you can throw the whole book in the trash. There are clear matters of holiness. And God calls us to obedience. And here it's particularly in how we care for one another, how we love. But here are some other implications, some other of those, those ripples, if you will, that I think fit with the spirit of the passage. Matters of conscience. Matters of conscience. And there should be a, a graphic that we could throw up here that might help. Matters of conscience. So some of us are free to do things things that aren't sin, that others may not feel free to do. Look at, at Romans 14, for example, if you want to follow this further. Alcohol usage might be an example, actually. Maybe you feel free to drink in moderation, 
And that's fine. But if you're around someone who struggled with that, my wife, for example, you might want to forgo it out of love, at least in her presence. We show patience to those struggling with matters of conscience. Another category, matters of preference. Preference. So Tyler up here, he's free to choose a lot of different songs. And I know there are some that he prefers. But biblical freedom means thinking about, in his role here, of what best serves you and me as a congregation. Right? So following Jesus may mean laying down our preferences. Here's another one to think about. Areas of influence. I am a white man in the United States of America. And I am free to do things that others find very difficult to do. I have privilege. It's true. Now you can argue that we all have the same opportunity. But my friend John Nelson, he's actually the, the first black president of the Missouri Baptist Convention. So he's a part of a denomination that many of you are familiar with that we've had partnerships with that was literally started to kind of avoid, like to maintain slavery. He's now the first president of the Missouri Baptist Convention. And he says that it's like this. The black American may still be playing the same game, we'll call it monopoly, but he's starting out 20 squares behind and thousands of dollars in debt. We, and that's just one example culturally. We don't all start out in the same place with the same freedoms. And something love would lead us to do, I'm convinced, is to use our influence, our privilege, toward justice, toward empowering others. Here's another category, matters of convenience. There are ways that you and I may be free to do things because of our position, whatever, that are faster, cheaper, and easier for us. But moving in that direction almost always leads us, leads us away from ministry. Most opportunities to share Jesus do not fit well in my Google calendar, right? He wants us to forget what's convenient and give ourselves to others in love. And, you know, I heard a laugh from Darren over there. He knows me. That's a true statement, right? I'm preaching at me. What about areas of weakness? Not just in terms of cultural power, but maybe physical. How can we use our freedom to serve the disabled, the elderly? Maybe orphans, the unborn, refugees, the poor, the immunocompromised. Think of my friend Jay Gonzalez, who many of you know that had a heart transplant that really can't leave his house right now. You know, little Jane, you know, who's going to have to harbor up in, in the home for quite a while to protect her after her heart transplant. Right? That's what's been so hard about our response to COVID. We're screaming about freedom. Jesus wants us to care about the weak, right? That's what our freedom is for. Not for us, but for others. But the thing that's sad and ironic in all this is we forgot how weak we all are. It's kind of biting It's sad. Last week I gave this one-minute summary of this book by Paul Miller, The J-Curve. And I know it was clear as mud, so I'll get back to it down the road. But I talked about how we understand believing in Jesus for the most part, at least, but we struggle with becoming like him on how to apply it, how to live out the gospel. And in, in the chapter that I read this week, or one of them, he makes this point that I think fits so well with what we're talking about here in Galatians 5. 
he says, as we believe the gospel, we move from slave to free. Slave to free. Okay, before Jesus, we're slaves to sin. Right? Where we're following the world, the flesh, but now through his grace, we're free. Free from the law, but we're free to be who we were made to be. But now, as we try to become the gospel and live it out, we move the other direction from free to slave. Like Jesus, we take our freedom and we use that freedom to serve. We become servants of our brothers and sisters. Faith leads us to love. Tom Schreiner puts it this way. He says, Christian freedom does not function as an excuse for satisfying selfish desires, but expresses itself paradoxically in serving one another in love. Amen, Tom. We should use our freedom not to sin, but to serve, and that's Paul's main point here. But let's move second to Paul's rationale, why this is so critical. Love, Paul says, is the point of the whole Old Testament law to begin with. He writes in verse 14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he quotes part of Leviticus 19.18, a verse from the Old Testament law to tell us the point of the Old Testament law. We've been walking through the study that talks about what the, the law can't do. It can never make us right with God. But here we get to what the law pointed to, what it was trying to do, what it was all about. It was trying to pull us up, first of all, into God's end, Right? All the rules were meant to help us see that we needed His help, that we couldn't do it. So the law was meant to drive us to grace. But second, what were all the rules about? How can they be summarized? And Paul was saying, love one another. Right? When we love, we fulfill what the whole Old Testament law was about. Now it seems ironic that these Judaizers, they're trying to keep the letter of the law, but that's driving them away from its spirit. And of course, that's what Jesus said to the Pharisees as well. The Spirit, that's what we're to be concerned about now because Jesus said that He came to fulfill the whole law. That all of that law pointed to Him. He kept it perfectly. Now, we don't have to keep all those regulations. Now, yes, yeah, some of those commands, yeah, they find their, ways in, their way into the New Testament. They're, they're God's way of guiding us toward loving Him and loving our neighbor. Now, we, as chapter 6, verse 2 puts it, we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We love God, we love neighbor, now we live out this law of love together. Don't get confused. Um, this verse says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What's Paul trying to say here? You and I undoubtedly, continually, think about ourselves and care for our needs, and Paul says, how you're doing that, do that for other people. Love those around you in that way. And as you do, Paul is saying, you get to the whole point of the law. And of course, we know Jesus says that as, as well. We're soon going to be jumping into the book of Matthew here at Carus, and I'm really excited about that. But in chapter 22, verse 7, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. So our freedom is for love. Whether or not we grasp this love from God will show itself in how we treat those around us. And it's extremely important. I want to turn to our third point, to what's at stake, to what happens when we don't walk in true freedom and love one another. Paul again says, don't use your freedom to sin but to serve. That's what the law is all about. But otherwise, if you won't listen, he says, be scared. Be very, very scared. Verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. What will destroy a church? Well, you might say sexual sin, and that's for sure true. I mean, a pastor committing immorality, a member committing sexual abuse, that'll close the doors really quick. But what makes most churches, a lot of churches, not really great, right, is that everyone acts like animals and people eat each other alive. That's what Paul is warning about here. People letting themselves go. They exercise their freedom and they engage in all sorts of gossip and slander and backbiting on gender. It's not a fun place to be. But it's what happens if we give ourselves over to sin. We end up in a church that's devoid of love and full of all sorts of pain. Hear me, a place where people assert their rights at the expense of others is not safe or the least bit fun. In America, I think it's been an illustration of that over the last couple of years. Like many of you, I've been watching some of the documentaries over the past couple of weeks on 9-11. And one of the most disturbing parts, honestly, that I don't think I remember from before, um, was just watching the people jumping off of the burning buildings. It was really hard. You know, you had people running for their lives on the ground that were just horrified looking up at that. Um, I was really struck and it... It was hard to hear the firefighters below that were kind of strategizing, many of them who would later die, strategizing about what to do as they kept hearing continual thuds, thud, thud, and they knew exactly what it was. I've talked about this a lot the last couple of months, but we've been seeing and hearing of people leaping from the church over and over the past couple of years. And the explanation isn't complicated. The place has been on fire, and people don't want to take it anymore. Russell Moore is a friend and mentor of mine, and he's really, his, his writings have encouraged me a lot during the season. He says that back in the day, people would leave the faith because they couldn't believe in what Christianity teaches. So they had trouble with the resurrection and miracles and things like that. But he argues today people are leaving because they think that we don't believe what it teaches. He writes, talking almost like he has today's passage in mind, this. If people reject the church because they reject Jesus and the gospel, we should be saddened but not surprised. But what happens when people reject the church because they think we reject Jesus and the gospel? People have always left the church because they want to gratify the flesh, but what happens when people leave because they believe the church exists to gratify the flesh? In orgies of sex or anger or materialism. That's a far different problem. What if people don't leave the church because they disapprove of Jesus because they've read the Bible and have come to the conclusion that the church itself would disapprove of Jesus? That's a crisis. Not be 
becoming like the gospel, not living in a way that loves, that hurts. It ruins our witness to the world. But as verse 15 puts it, it also leads to our destruction. If the house is on fire, nobody is going to want to stop by, but everybody inside is also going to die. But what do we do about it? I want to give you three points of application as I begin to wind to a, a close. I want to encourage you by God's grace, for His glory, to pursue three important roles with me as we try to fight against this. First, I want to ask you to be a culture maker. A culture maker. A, a buzzword thrown around today, athletics business, is culture. What's the goal when a, when a new boss or a new coach comes into town? to create a new culture where there's certain things, there's a certain way that we do things around here, where the right things are pursued, the wrong things are avoided. Do your part in creating a family where people don't run around with knives. If you have an issue with someone, go directly to him or to her. Don't talk about that person to someone else. If someone anchors you by the Spirit, in prayer, try to show restraint. Don't vent to your brothers and sisters around you. So don't just give freedom in your flesh to like let it fly. Be a leader. And a great way to lead is if you sin against someone else, and you will, go to them, ask for forgiveness, and repent. So set an example even in that. Model good, healthy living to those around you. Just let me say, and it applies to all of these, I see us doing that. And I'm so grateful. But you also may need to do more than just set an example, but you may need to, to speak up. So second, be a peace officer. What do I mean? Nobody wants to live in a house where people run around with knives, but nobody wants to tell people to put down their knives. So be the type of person that does, that tells people to stop. And again, I, I see you doing this, and I think it's why we're experiencing God's grace in so many ways. Don't be self-righteous. Don't be rude about it. Don't nitpick. Listen to last week's message. But when you see something, something that works against gospel culture, say something and say it with love. And as you do, try to do it in a way that connects with people's hearts. Help people to see where that lack of love leads. Here's an example. I'm talking to another man in cars, and I say, Brother... You know what you just told me about Steve? Think about this. What would it be like if you thought I was taking my gripes about you to him? Think about what would happen if everyone in our church was doing exactly this. You don't want that, right? So go talk to him. And I, and I know Steve. I know it will go well. Third, be a gospel encourager. A gospel encourager. If you've been around my wife much and she gets in kind of one of her goofy phases, which is, you know, a lot of the time. But she likes to talk about how she thinks that um, world leaders, um, big name celebrities, she's just convinced that the ones that come off the most rude and the most pompous are literally at the end of the day crying themselves to sleep at night. You know, she feels that compassion. I mean, I think that's a stretch. I doubt that happens, but I think there's, there's some truth to what she says, because hurt people hurt people, and insecurity is generally what's underneath all that hurt that's driving all that behavior out, because we're, we're fighting for our reputations, and as we do, we're hurting other people in the process. 
But here's what a gospel encourager does. He or she doesn't just say, believe in Jesus, stupid, stop sinning already. No. The gospel encourager, again, tries to get to the heart to ask people why they're acting in those ways. What, what lies are you believing? What, what idols are you bowing down to? It's, it's reminding people of what Jesus has done, of who they are now in Christ, that they don't have to prove themselves anymore, that they don't have to defend themselves to those around them. It's reminding your brothers and sisters that they're accepted, that they're secure in Him. And it's not just that they shouldn't do what they're doing. More importantly, it's that they don't need to do what they're doing. That's the deepest, the best way we can possibly love our brothers and sisters, is reminding them of the gospel, what Jesus has done, and therefore we can put down our knives and stop lighting fires everywhere. I see this among you, and I'm so grateful for that. Culture creators, peace officers, gospel encouragers. A couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to chat with Ray Orland, and he made this simple but profound statement. He said that if we, God's people, could be a little pocket of shalom within all the rage that's going on around us today, he said it would be prophetic and powerful in our age. And that's so true. It really starts with a deep confidence in the gospel. If we could, if we could reclaim that, people would be running in our doors and not jumping out. But how do we get to that place? Well, here's my candidate for number two. And just bear with me. I grew up with like all the, like the, the top 20 music lists and such. But here's my candidate for number two on my list of verses we should have memorized before COVID. It's found in Philippians 2. Philippians 2.1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So I talked about those at the start about those two ways we try to live, either trying to keep the rules or trying to throw them off entirely. Here in Galatians, we've seen we can't make ourselves right with God, but we can't just throw ourselves in the other direction and just do what we please. What's the route to the third way to loving one another well? It's Philippians 2. Who Christ is, what he has done, that has to get into our hearts for real. And we have to realize what this passage is saying. He's God in heaven, folks. But he does not cling to his rights. He lays them down. The king of the universe becomes a servant. It says he empties himself. He's, he's born in a manger. You know, we just kind of blow past that. That's humility there. He dies for us on a cross. That's the cheapest form of humiliation. This is Jesus. This is who he is. This is what he's done for us. Paul says in verse 5, 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So look at yourself in the same way. Pattern yourself after him. This is in verse 4. Don't just think about you and look after you and what you want to do. Care for those around you. He adds in verse 3. Lay down your pride. Make yourselves low and put others first. Again, like Jesus. And in verse 2 he says, children, make me happy by walking in love and unity, by loving each other well, by living this way. And I love the way this all starts in verse 1. I want you to imagine the Apostle Paul, you know, our father in the faith, a loving father, looking at us in our eyes, holding us by the chin, and saying verse 1, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, and you're nodding, any comfort for love, and we're like, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and we're tracking with Him, and we're just saying, yeah, of course there is, Paul. And then it just kind of hits us. How we live isn't that complicated. In fact, how can we live in any other way but in using our freedom to serve? I want you to hear, Cars, I'm so proud of you. I've talked about creating a culture. I think by the grace of God, we built a family together that has said, yeah, of course we're going to love our neighbors. We've done our, our best to do that. I'm so proud and I'm so grateful. And I've told lots of people, by God's grace, I think we we're pretty prepared for this hell on earth that we've been through. And I think we're going to be fine. That's the third way we could live. So moved by what Jesus has done for us that we want to do whatever we can for Him. And that means, more than anything, loving those around us from the heart. Doing that leads to a family that's both safe and good. Cars were free for love. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you for your grace shown to us. Just the thought that you the most free, truly free being in the universe, would lay that down for us. What an amazing thought. And we give you thanks. We give you praise, Lord. We know that nothing can pay you back. Nothing can earn it. Um, but Lord, we just pray that you would enable us by your spirit to just have the ability, even just small ways, just in baby steps, to pattern ourselves after that. Um, to show what you look like to the world around us, Lord. Um, use us, I pray. Work through us, I pray. In Jesus' name.